Good evening to you all. So now the Brahma Vihara that you're working with is compassion, right? And this can uh, bring up some very interesting things. Because compassion is not an easy practice, as you may have noticed. And I wanted to touch on uh, some of the things related to the practice of compassion through a different kind of uh, approach. I want to talk about it through the examination of equanimity and the role that it plays in our ability to be compassionate and to care for ourselves and others. So I'll start with an examination of equanimity and what equanimity actually is. So I like to use images. And the image that I have for equanimity is a kind of uh, master surfer. Someone who is able to move easily and fluidly and responsively because they're in connected relationship with the waves. They're spontaneous, they're sensitive to what's happening, and there's a very deep kind of balance. So there's a constant balanced response to continually moving conditions. Not rigid, but moving in relationship to the very circumstances that are arising right under them at the moment they're arising. And this image, for me, creates a kind of three-dimensional representation about what equanimity is. This uh, upeka, as it's called in Pali, refers to a state of connected, accepting, balanced openness, relaxed, centered presence, clear, non-resistant allowing, and spacious stability. So Pekka is usually translated in uh, English as equanimity, but equanimity itself comes from a Latin word, equus, meaning balanced, and animus, meaning spirit or internal state. So in trying to define what it is, it can be really useful also to focus briefly on what it isn't. Because this is a particular uh, factor of mind or state which can be misunderstood. And this state is not suppression. So suppression is when we attempt to deal with an arising state or experience by shutting it down, denying it, tightening around it, and so on. And that suppression is a form of fear or aversion. And equanimity is not that. And it's also not apathy or indifference. 
And apathy and indifference is a state where there's not really a connection with what's going on, but a kind of withdrawing from reality in a deluded or defeated manner. Right? So equanimity is not, I don't care, or whatever. (laughs) So Shinzen Young highlights the difference between equanimity and uh, apathy with this description, which I find very interesting. He says, equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. In other words, we're not getting in the way of what's happening. We're not interfering with it. We're allowing it. He says, apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. So he's saying, with apathy, something could be done, but there's just no bothering to do so. And he says, thus, although seemingly similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel and as such is the opposite of suppression. As far as external expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what's appropriate to the situation. So when this state is strong, you can either do or not do. So this freedom to express externally or not this equipoise, comes from a kind of balance. In other words, when no compulsive reactivity is present, wisdom is free to operate. Right? It's discernment that will make the choice of what's to be done, if anything. So in thinking about equanimity, it can be uh, helpful to reflect a little bit on why it's of personal value, you know, why this is a quality that we want to cultivate. And we could start by thinking about what you may have already noticed here in your, your practice these weeks, is that we're in a world where there's limited ability to choose what we experience, right? As much as we wish that we could, we can't really turn the selectomatic to the setting that we desire and get what we want. You know, we see this in a number of different ways. For instance, we see that the eight worldly winds, as the Buddha said, are always blowing. In our lives, over time, we see gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and ill repute or criticism, moving through our lives in very unpredictable ways, never knowing 
for instance, what you might get blamed for that you actually undertook under difficult circumstances and to the best that you could do. Or never knowing what gain might arise out of a situation of apparent loss. Again, this idea of life being inherently unstable. You know, as we see when we look at things on a more uh, microscopic level, or a more broken down level as well, when we're sitting and looking at the arising of various states of mind and body, and we start to see the many different arisings and passings away even within a particular state, we come to an appreciation that this impermanence thing that we talk about, that the sanicca, is always happening. It's always going on in every single thing that we can experience. These many smaller cycles of things coming into being and passing away within these larger experiences of a mind state or a state of body or a period of time like a day or within a year or within a decade. Always we're being presented with new experience because of this fundamental instability that's built into this conditioned nature of reality. And these new experiences, of course, all arise out of causes and conditions that we don't directly control. So if we were going to to think about our surfing image, at some point the realization may dawn that, well, if we can't control what's arising and passing away, then where is the sense of uh, empowerment going to come from? And it's going to come from developing the ability to figure out how to move with, how to ride, how to harmonize with this very impermanence that we can't get rid of. You know, as we practice, if we struggle against what's painful or unpleasant, We suffer additionally from aversion. So there's the experience, then there's the aversive reaction to it, which is suffering on top of it. If we struggle to hold on to what's pleasant, we suffer additionally from the burn of greed. If we're free from the struggle of aversion, we don't suffer even though we may experience what's painful or unpleasant. The experience is known for what it is, and it passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. And this is equanimity. If we're free from the struggle to hold on to what we like, we're able to connect with and allow pleasant without becoming lost in it, or unhappy when things change, then we can know the experience for what it is, and it passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. And this is equanimity. Knowing things for what they are, 
without having a mushroom cloud of reactivity on top of what is first known. When we're balanced, centered, and present, we experience the mind state of equanimity. But of course, the catch in all of this is, well, how do you learn to open with equanimity to what you experience? How do we learn to surf the many different kinds of experiences that we have in a meditation session, in a day, in a lifetime? How? We can get an idea like, yeah, I can see that, that would be good, how do, that would be really useful. But how? How do you translate it? And of course, the Buddha being the master of skillful means that uh, he is, teaches us the Brahma Viharas. And equanimity, of course, is one of them. And that will be the last one that we teach as part of that uh, fourplex. But I want to talk primarily now about the cultivation of equanimity within uh, insight practice, within Vipassana. And if you remember back to your very first connection with meditation instructions, assuming that you were uh, given them in a clearer kind of way and that your mind was you know, kind of lucid that day and you actually heard them, um, one of the things that might have been striking to you is that the instructions talked about being willing to open to um, unpleasant and difficult experiences among everything else, right? And that's very startling to people often when they start practice because, you know, usually we come to practice and we are coming to practice not because we're too happy, right? So we're looking for something else. Like we're looking for something more along the lines of... uh, you know, bliss and peace and light and love and that kind of end of the spectrum. You know, that's, that one sounds good. And then we come in and we start practice and we get these instructions that says, well, you know, unpleasant and difficult and uh, even painful experiences uh, are valid meditation objects. You know, if aversion arises in the mind, open to aversion. Note it, aversion, aversion, open to aversion. Uh, self-judgment arises in the mind. Notice self-judgment, 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 open to self-judgment, you know, and on through the whole uh, spectrum of things, all the hindrances and all the painful states. So this is a very counterintuitive thing to be uh, encouraged to do. And usually something we really don't want to do and something we're not good at doing, right? Because... As far as uh, we're concerned, usually what we actually want to do with all of those kinds of things is to get the hell away from them as soon as we can, right? If you can't avoid them completely, you know, give them the, what's the football move, the straight arm, you know, when they come at you. See if you can break the tackle and get away. And in fact, in early states of practice, people can get the idea that having 
difficult and unpleasant experiences is proof that they're doing something wrong. Right? But this is not necessarily or uh, even mostly the case. And in fact, difficult and unpleasant experiences are often just the way things are. It's just the way it is. So the cultivation of equanimity involves an understanding that it's developed out of a process that connects with, not rejects, any and all experience. In other words, there are no good waves and no bad waves. There's just waves. And in some essential manner, the mind needs to learn to treat them as all the same, as similar, essentially similar, as just waves. There was a talk uh, earlier in the week, I think, about the seven factors of awakening, right? where Annie was talking about how these open and manifest in the mind as insight practice goes along. And if you recall, they were mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and then equanimity at the tail end. And they generally open in roughly this order, not completely. And there's a kind of a spiraling thing that happens uh, with them over time as practice continues. And there is a form of equanimity that can develop in practice, usually late in practice, which is the highest development of this particular state of equanimity. It's often called high equanimity. And it develops as a result of continued practice and connecting with all experience in a specific manner. And that's a big provided, as they say in the legal biz, provided experience is met in a specific manner. And in Vipassana practice, we learn to open again and again to things as they have come to be, as the Buddha calls it. Without discrimination, we open to what's actually present, whether we like it or not. Without clinging, we let go of things when they pass away, not holding on to them and not pushing them away. And from this way of practicing, the mind gets a kind of non-attached presence attuned to whatever is happening without preference. And this whatever is different from whatever. This is whatever. So Bhante G talks about this process of developing equanimity through the practice of Vipassana. And this is what he says. Once you see that all the components of the body and the mind, all of them, in the past, present, and future, are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and selfless, something remarkable happens. Equanimity arises regarding all conditioned things. Your mind looks at everything with equanimity, 
wholesome, unwholesome, physical, verbal, mental, good, bad, or indifferent, it is all the same. It is beingness. It is simply reality. Your viewpoint is imperturbable. You realize that all these wonderful thoughts and feelings are constantly changing on a very subtle level. And those terrible ones are constantly changing too. A very deep letting go can occur. The arising of peace that passes understanding. And that's a very good description of high equanimity. Where all resistance to things as as they are has ceased and where there's no longer any holding on. And the mind is simply open to reality just as it is. It sees things as they are, and it's from this state of deep equanimity that uh, enlightenment experiences arise. Right? When the mind has basically turned away from uh, trying to manipulate experience, turned away from pushing and pulling, and going unconscious and is now conscious and is present with things just as they are with nothing more to do than just be with reality as it presents itself. But of course, you know, there is always a catch with this stuff, which is that this level and degree of equanimity is a culmination point in the unfolding of the seven factors of enlightenment. So it's not a starting point, as you may have noticed. So, you know, we can't will ourselves into this. Would that we could. Because if we could do that, then we would already have had this experience, right? But we can't will ourselves into it because it emerges out of a process of learning moment by moment, how to open and allow whatever arises. So this is a learned outcome. So then the question is, well, how do you learn to open? Well, by following meditation and inst- the meditation instructions, which have embedded in them uh, the orientation towards acceptance and a turning of the mind in the direction of noticing what's happening, where most of the mind's energy is directed towards noticing, registering, connecting with things. And if the mind is absorbed in the noticing of the mindful turning towards and receiving there's a lot less energy available for the resistance and reaction too, right? Because it's just continually registering what's happening, registering what's happening, registering what's happening. It's not apart from what's being experienced. It's interested in and penetrating into it. So the meditation instructions have many uh, hidden secrets in them. So gradually we learn how to connect with whatever arises with balance. 
Now, if we went back to our image of the surfer, I don't know if any of you know how to surf. Anybody know how to surf here? All right. So, you know, very often when you're learn, first learning how to surf, you actually practice getting on the board and standing up on the board on the beach, right? There's that. Because there's a little art with, you know, how you go from getting on the board to, like, how you get upright. Kind of hard to learn to do out on the water. So, you know, the, the meditation instructions are kind of a, a graduated progression in helping you develop some degree of mastery of some uh, initial skills in the interest of being able to build upon them. So we start simply, and just as with surfing, you know, as we as our balance improves and we get a better idea about what's going on, we're able to allow more types of experience without falling off. Right? So we can go from perhaps maybe connecting with the breath or connecting with hearing into connecting with Oh, an unpleasant sensation to maybe connecting to a difficult emotional state. We build on this process. But how do we learn how to, you know, stay upright in these states? Well, just like with surfing, you learn how to do it by falling off over and over and over and over again, right? Connecting with, allowing, connecting with, allowing, opening, getting lost, spacing out, falling off, cold water, oh, I've been lost, getting back on the board. Oh, big wave, ooh, aversion, oh, lost in aversion. Many times, over and over again. Eventually, you may start to pick up the idea that, oh, this is, uh, I think I'm gradually learning an attentional skill. A-T-T-E-N, attentional skill. I'm learning an attentional skill. I'm learning how to attend. But there's a whole other part of this, of course, because it's not just an attentional skill. Because in order to do this, in order to be willing to do this, there are these qualities of heart that also have to be developed and brought along, right? In order to have the willingness to continue to attempt to meet things and to have the patience with the whole process and all the difficulties that are involved with it. But over time, if we continue, just like with any other kind of skill that requires finesse, you start to get the feeling for what right effort is in a given situation. Right? Just in the same way that, you know, a third party couldn't really tell you, you know, how to surf a particular wave. They they could tell you some general things. Right? But it's not a substitute for the person who's actually on the board out in the water and what you see from your uh, wave's eye view 
and what you feel and sense through connection with the board that's on the wave, right? So this turns means that it turns back to you. It turns back to the sensitivity of your own uh, mindfulness, right? And the continuity of the mindfulness to be able to uh, feel it. Start to figure out, you know, where to, where to cut, where to turn. And sometimes when it's really rough, when to get the heck out of the water altogether for a while. So we start to learn this wise attention and sensitive and consistent observation and patience. And, you know, to, to do this over time, to, to continue to make effort in this kind of way, uh, can be very challenging. It can require a lot of dedication and a lot of patience, and it can be hard to marshal that kind of effort on a consistent basis. Because it takes dedication. So then the question is, well, you know, how do you arouse that? And I know there have been teachings on, you know, using reflection to bring up willingness to increase energy and dedication to try to meet the challenges of this particular practice. But there are other reasons, too, that could energize your continuation of practice in the interest of developing equanimity. And that is, there's a very strong relationship between steadying the mind, which is one way to describe equanimity, and being able to open the heart. Because the heart doesn't open unless it feels at least somewhat safe, right? Unless it feels like there's some kind of uh, adult supervision of the situation. The adult would be you in this case, or the factor of equanimity, that stability uh, of mind, that deep balance of mind. So equanimity can help provide the sense of safety that makes it possible to open the heart. And that's one of the reasons why, even though the Brahma Viharas, uh, you know, loving, loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity, are trained as four different things, equanimity is part of all of them. Right? Because unless there's some basic balance in the other three, um, the mind doesn't have enough stability to really be able to hold the right note with them. Right? They easily turn into, into something else. So this equanimity grows in part by the practice of gradually learning to open up to difficult states. The laboratory is our own minds, and the material is our own challenging mind states. So this equanimity is a very interesting characteristic because we can practice with it both internally and externally. So, 
you know, the Buddha talks about knowing the states of, you know, states of mind internally and externally. And when he talks about knowing states externally, it's usually uh, thought to mean recognizing that in others, recognizing states of mind in others. And we can cultivate equanimity both within the ground of our own mind and our own experience, but also we can cultivate it through our awareness of the states of others. And we can cultivate it in relationship to other people and their experiences. And that's why, uh, for me, equanimity is a very important linchpin in the ability to be compassionate and not be self-destructive. You can see that it's really a crucial asset in dealing with the suffering state of other people. Because when it's strong, it keeps us from tipping over into pity or fear and disgust, which can sometimes be there and can arise when we attempt to give support and assistance. You know, sometimes when we really feel somebody's in a difficult situation. We want to come in and ride to the rescue and we kind of take over the situation for them and do our own thing with it because of something we're experiencing and feeling, right? We're not adequately sensitive to what their actual experience is. We kind of overlay out of emotions and mental states that arise in us, our own trip on top of them. But if we can tune into the state of other people as it is, while simultaneously, say, becoming aware of our own impulse to have them not suffer because it's really making us feel bad, and the chances are we can be a bit more skillful with the undertaking. By keeping our own welfare in mind as well as the welfare of others too, keeping a mind's eye on our own relative equanimity, we can keep compassion for others from becoming self-destructive or a state of suffering for ourselves. And how does this happen? By providing a steadiness of mind, a centeredness that can observe suffering or no suffering without being drowned in it. Equanimity allows us to keep our own seat. That's a horseback riding phrase, you know, keep your seat. It's an interesting thing. Because it kind of implies, you know, horses have different gates. You know, they can walk, they can trot, they can canter, they can gallop. They can also jump, go sideways and get squirrely and try to buck you off. This idea of keeping your seat is a good image for equanimity because it suggests being able to maintain contact with something that's moving in kind of unpredictable ways and not losing uh, contact with it. 
So equanimity allows us to maintain this kind of contact so that we're not thrown off when we are in contact with the difficult states of others. And how does it do that? It's because it's so open and so accepting that it's infinitely flexible. Now, in order to be able to open to the difficult states of other beings, we have to have learned how to do that in ourselves. I mean, how could you possibly be able to open in a balanced way to, say, a very difficult mind state, say, in your own child, unless you had some experience in opening that opening to that in yourself. This ability to be present and sensitive to circumstances with an open heart is something that's learned, right? It's not that we're a compassionate person or a not compassionate person. Or that, you know, we're good at this or we're not good at it. It's learned. When equanimity is strong, we have the maximal ability to act and choose in a wise and skillful and effective way to promote our own well-being and that of other people. So reflecting on the value of this equanimity can strengthen our potential to help other people And if that's an important value to you, then that can be a powerful motivator to learn how to open in a balanced way to your own difficult states. And why is that? Well, because decreased reactivity to our own states of mind is really important when working with the difficult states of others, right? If somebody else's fear really makes you afraid, you're going to have a very hard time being effective. Unless you can see your own fear with some degree of equanimity. When we aren't afraid of or reactive to our own anger, fear, greed, delusion, We've laid the ground for not being afraid of these experiences as they manifest in others. So then we can come in close to help without getting burned. Retaining the clarity of mind which allows us to see just how close it is that we should come. What's the helpful range with things? We can see what we should do and what we can do that would be skillful. We can see what our impulses to rescue are. And we can let go of the ones that aren't skillful, helpful, or realistic. So then the question comes, well, how do you learn to work with the difficult states of others? And it's just the same way that you learn to work with the difficult states of your own, which is by messing it up. (laughs) Right? By getting too close, by getting too far away, by 
being skillful by being unskillful by you know doing the best you can and seeing what happens that's the only way you can learn it just the same way you learn to open to your own trying and failing and trying to see more clearly and changing the approach and trying again and I, I will say just as a general statement that it's impossible to open to the suffering of others and never get burned yourself. You will. You will get burned. Right? And anybody who's worked in any of the helping professions under heavy-duty conditions has, has learned this. But it's not like the suffering... is a essential nature of helping others. It's just that we're awkward in doing it, and so it often seems like it's an, an inevitable part of the undertaking. But if we're paying attention, you know, if our own self-caring and equanimity uh, is a value to us, then it's possible to start to learn when we get burned in this undertaking and to change the approach to make it more skillful. Right? Because this is part of our ongoing process that that I talked about, us continually learning with increased sensitivity and increased contact with reality. The feedback loop starts to tell us. You know, maybe they'll still be suffering. You know, learn and change again. Adapt, adjust. You know? And part of the observation is getting to know when it's too much, too. You know, when the surfer is off the board, in the water, and the sharks are, you know, little fins are floating around, that's a sign to get out. Because the the practice of compassion is not about self-destruction, right? It's knowing your own state as well as that of the others and considering realistically what resources are currently available to employ. And this, this clear and steady mind is one of the most important things. So the equanimity phrase is, uh, one version of it is, may I learn to see the arising and passing of all things with equanimity and balance. May I be open and balanced and peaceful. You know, uh, there used to be this this saying uh, shortly after uh, First World War, I think, it was something like, uh, this was an English saying, so not to be partisan here, but it's just something I heard uh, referenced uh, a number of times growing up. And it was something along the lines of, well, the war, this is the First World War, was won, this is from the perspective of the English, on the playing fields of Eton. You know, Eton is this uh, elite uh, male boarding school in England. You know, and basically what they were saying with that is, well, it was in the process of, you know, learning to work as a group and, you know, endure hardship and push, you know, uh, 
development of capacities, that capacities were developed that were later translated into the ability to uh, endure the hardships of war in a disciplined and courageous fashion. You know, so your uh, playing fields of Eaton are kind of on the cushion as far as your ability to um, act in the community and in the world. Because it's, it's really um, learning it from the inside out. I can remember um, an experience I had a few years ago with uh, a family member who was uh, elderly and um, someone uh, that I loved and a person who uh, didn't have children of his own. So when he got you know, towards the end of his life, then the care for him fell on my mother and my aunt and then on uh, nieces and nephews, which, of which I am one. And uh, when he was at the point in the nursing home where he was passing away, um, it was very difficult for his, his sisters, very difficult for them. And um, they had a hard time being in the room because it's hard. It's hard to be there. Um, and because I had uh, a lot of love for him, and because this this mind was present at the time, as well as compassion, my mind was so steady that I could go in, you know, go in close. So I, for instance, was the one in the room that, you know, was able to talk to him about what was happening, was able to pull the chair up to the bed, you know, right up to the bed and take his hand and hold it. And it was really interesting to see what happened, uh, you know, as the hours uh, went on in this process because after a while, his sisters, you know, who were having such a hard time with his suffering and with his imminent demise, they started wanting to sit in the chair by the bed, right? They were able to come in closer. They were able to uh, move in with uh, less fear and difficulty to make that kind of human connection with him. And so the family, uh, you know, we were there when he passed away. And one of the people that was there in the room uh, with them was uh, another uncle of mine, the husband of my aunt, And he did a very uh, beautiful modeling of uh, equanimity for me um, at the funeral service when I saw this happening. So the funeral service was, you know, very difficult, as these things are. And uh, my uncle at the time was probably 90, right, years old himself, not very stable on his feet. You know, but when it was all over and people were leaving the church, and you know the t- the two sisters, his wife and my mother, um, were walking down and and leaving the church. He just offered his elbows, 
you know, one on each side. So there's, there's the elders, you know, the 90-year-old uncle and the 88-year-old aunt and my 85-year-old mother. And, you know, they're just like out of the church. It was just such a, a graceful thing to see. Okay, these, these are all people at the end of their lives heading towards the horizon themselves, right? They've just been through this big thing, losing someone of their, their own generation. But their minds were stable. You know, they were able to be there, they were able to open to it, they were able to offer support to each other. And this is part of the fruit of this kind of practice. So if, you know, this kind of capacity is an important one for you, you know, whether it's for your immediate family members or people in your immediate community or something you wish to have access to and and open to the world at large, it's through the kind of practices that we're doing here and the internal learning that happens here that this stability of mind and this greatness of heart is developed. So just to uh, close the practice for tonight, the talk. May you all find within you the motivation and trust of your own greatness of heart and may it arise within you as a resource and power for your own benefit and that of all beings. May it be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.